We turn to the book of Malachi this morning, Malachi chapter 2. We read the chapter, taking as our text, verses 14 through 16. We hear the inspired word of God in Matthew and Malachi 2. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and to turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible, and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. 
or where is the God of judgment? We read God's word that far. As I stated, we take as our text verses 14 to 16. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the first part of this chapter, God speaks of the covenant that he established between himself and Israel through Levi. You'll recall Levi was the tribe from which the priests came. Malachi beautifully describes that covenant that God established with Levi, a bond of friendship, that which was eternal, that which was established purely by grace. In that covenant, God blesses his people with life and with peace. Those in that covenant have the calling to walk with God, to turn from iniquity and to live holy lives, to oppose evil and to love the truth of God. And Malachi especially addresses his words toward those priests, those leaders in Israel who were failing in that responsibility. Against the backdrop of that gracious covenant of God, the people of Levi's day were walking in sin. God had done wondrous things for them. And yet they were cold. They were indifferent. They were turning their back on Jehovah God. They weren't teaching God's law. They weren't promoting God's commandments and God's will. They didn't treat their brothers, their sisters with love. They didn't treat them with the kindness they were called to treat them. The Levites were not carrying themselves as examples within the congregation in Israel. And their chief sin was in the realm of marriage. The Levites themselves were engaged in mixed marriages. They were practicing divorce and remarriage. And these sinful abuses of God's covenant in the realm of marriage moved Malachi now to write this by the inspiration of God. These leaders had to be confronted with regard to their failure with regard to God's covenant. Now, beloved, it's appropriate, the occasion of baptism, for us to hear God's word regarding the permanence of marriage. Parents who stand before God in the church and pledge to train up their children in the fear of Jehovah may not divorce. God has brought you together. God is the one who gives you children together. And God promises to give you grace and to give you strength as you train up those children in the fear and honor of his name. Divorce is not only a failure to maintain your marriage vow, divorce is a failure to maintain your calling with regard to your children. The Bible clearly, unmistakably condemns divorce. Only one biblical ground is given, fornication. This morning we look at God's covenant here in the context of Malachi 2 in connection with marriage. And we hear the word, deal not treacherously, with your wife. Noting, first of all, the holy union. Secondly, the sinful abuse. 
And finally, the godly witness. First, the holy union. Malachi here addresses the wonder of what God has done in verse 15. And did he not make one? Now that verse involves some obscurity. The Hebrew language is not as clear and precise as it could be. The Greek, as you know, is very precise. The Hebrew is not as precise. The result is a number of different meanings are given to this verse. Some say this is a reference to Abraham. And then they take the reference to Abraham then in a negative way. Abraham, you remember, had many wives. And therefore, he was one father of the nation, but he had many wives. And he gave an example of that sin by his polygamy. And the point then is that this. The priests are defending their sin by pointing to Abraham. They're saying, but look at Abraham. He had many wives, so can't we? That's one way that some interpret this. Another way, similarly, is to Abraham, but now in a favorable sense. So that they would argue that God intended, through Malachi here, to be speaking favorably of Abraham. And the favorable idea is this. The prophet anticipates an objection. As he's preaching against remarriage and against having multiple wives, he's anticipating they're going to say, but what about Abraham? And his response is that Abraham truly had more than one wife. But what was his motivation? His motivation was to bring forth a godly seed. And therefore, he was justified because his motive was right. Now, we reject that interpretation as well. Abraham is not being referenced here in these verses. There's no explicit reference to Abraham whatsoever. We understand this verse in the most simple manner possible. And the point is simply this. God instituted marriage. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman. God made one man. And then God made one woman. Now, God could have made one man and then multiple women. God could have made one woman and multiple men. He did not do so. God created one man, one woman. He created one. His spirit was not lacking. The reference, yet had he the residue of the spirit. The reference to spirit there is to power. He breathed the breath of the spirit into the man, into the woman, and they became one flesh. Now, God had all kinds of spirit remaining. God could have created all kinds more if he desired in order that marriage would constitute something very differently, but he did not do so. God had the power to make many men, many women. He did not. He made one. One human family was the root of the whole human race. And flowing out of that truth then are a number of implications. First of all then, the institution of marriage is God's institution. This isn't a rule that man made up. And that man then is free to change. This is God's institution from the very beginning. Jehovah God is the Lord of marriage. And God established marriage in that relation as one man, one woman. Not one man and one man. Not one woman, one woman. Not one man, multiple women. Not one woman and multiple men. One man, one woman. That's marriage. And God's authority is the authority on marriage, established from the very beginning. Jesus again and again affirmed this in the gospel accounts. For instance, we have in Matthew 19, verse 8, when he's refuting the Jews 
as the Pharisees are coming with their notion of divorce. And Jesus repeatedly says to them, in the beginning it was not so. Repeatedly, Jesus directs them to the beginning, that is Genesis 2. That is the reference that we have here. And did he not make one? God made Adam. God gave to Adam Eve. And God established one family. So that Malachi now says, consider how it was. How was it in the beginning? Did God give many wives to Adam? No. God brought Eve to Adam. The character of true marriage then was established there in the very beginning. Now why is it that it says God made one? Not only is the idea there that God made one man, one woman, but we also understand something that's more mysterious there. And that's the reference we have throughout the scriptures to the wonder by which a man and a woman are united as one flesh. The references to the union of that man and that woman. They are one. God created the man incomplete so that the woman would complete him. And God did so in such a way that the man and the woman then belong together. And for that reason, we have in Genesis 2, 24... Repeated again in Ephesians 5.31, the union of a man and a woman called one flesh. The law of marriage then is violated when a man seeks for himself another woman or when a wife seeks for herself another man. In addition to the one God already has given. Now why did God institute marriage in this manner? Our text answers that that he might seek a godly seed. Why is it that God has established marriage between one man and one woman? For the purpose of the godly seed. That God would continue his covenant. And that in that holy union, children would be brought forth who would continue that covenant. And they would be that godly seed. So here again, there's a couple of things that we can glean from then. God's institution of marriage. Those who marry but have no desire for children, violate the ordinance of marriage. God ordained that those who marry also desire to bring forth seed for the glory of God. There's no place for those who desire the sexual union without children. That applies to homosexuality. It applies to heterosexuality, to everything. There is no place For those who desire the sexual relation without children, God joined the two together. If you don't desire children, don't marry. Stay chaste. Now due to that close connection, we understand then the struggle of couples whom God brings together but then does not give the blessing of children. How painful it is for them knowing that connection and now God not being pleased to grant it in their connection, in their situation. And so we remember them in prayer. And we acknowledge the need for God's grace that they rest in God's sovereignty also in that area of their lives. We understand from this then that there is no way the institution of marriage can be defined with regard to homosexual relationships. A man cannot have godly seed with a man. A woman cannot have godly seed with a woman. Such relationships are not marriage, but they're an abomination to the bond of marriage and they're displeasing in God's eyes. God ordained that children need a father 
and a mother. And God is pleased to raise up that godly seed by means of a man and a woman joined as one in that holy bond of marriage. When a husband violates his covenant with his wife and has children with another, he can't be a legitimate father to those children. He or she who walks in such sin also then cannot expect the blessing of a godly seed. Now Malachi goes on, he says, Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? Verse 14. Your wife is the one whom God united you to by his authority. And that's the emphasis here. She is the wife of thy covenant. The wife who was joined to you by the most sacred covenant. Marriage isn't something that is a matter of my will, my actions, my doing. We acknowledge here God's sovereign hand with regard to our marriages. Jehovah God is the one who ordained the spouse that we would need and the one whom he would use to prepare us for glory. And in this connection then, we confess God's sovereign hand guiding the whole of our lives, directing us to the one who is our companion, the wife of our covenant. Now, are you living as such? Are you living with your wife as your companion, the wife of your covenant? Are you living with your husband in that spiritual manner? Now, we might ask ourselves in this connection, why is it that Malachi zeroes in on this sin here in chapter 2? There were many other gross violations of God's law. Israel was guilty of many, many violations. But he concerns himself here with the abuses in marriage because marriage is a covenant. She is thy companion, the wife of thy covenant. And as a covenant, marriage is the most clear picture of Jehovah's covenant with us. Jehovah God establishes an unbreakable covenant with his children in Jesus Christ. God's bond is such that he unites himself to a people so that he is one with that people, so that nothing can break that union and that he preserves that one then in fellowship and communion with himself in a most blessed manner. He does so by taking hold of us in Christ and making us his companions, making us the bride of his covenant. He establishes that covenant, he maintains that covenant, he preserves that covenant, and he will bring that covenant to its full realization in glory. In that relationship, there is selflessness. God gives himself selflessly for his bride. He gave his own son. And the church gives herself selflessly in thankful service and praise to her bridegroom, Jehovah God. God selflessly caring for us and we in response selflessly living our lives in his service and for his glory. By being unfaithful then in marriage, Israel profaned that covenant of God. They acted as though God's covenant could be broken. They turned their back on their spouses, not only, but they were turning their back on God. And they were not living in obedience to Jehovah. They were not living in thankfulness to God for the husband, the wife that God had been pleased to give them. 
Rather, they were profaning the covenant of God. They were profaning that relationship of friendship with the living God. Because of what marriage is, a beautiful reflection of that covenant of God with his people, God requires holiness in that marriage bond. And God hates all profaning of marriage. What is God saying to you and to me here? God is saying, I have given you a bosom friend in your husband and your wife. I have given you one with whom you've established covenant before me. How are you living and how are you reflecting that covenant, that blessed selfless relationship with each other? Beloved, it's not our business this morning to be pointing fingers. We look at ourselves. How am I living in my marriage? Am I walking according to God's ordinance? The marriage covenant is God's covenant. It's superior to all human contracts. This is God's ordinance. I'm not just violating a word that I spoke. I'm not even sinning merely against a man or a woman. I'm sinning against Jehovah God himself. If I'm not walking in love toward my wife, toward my husband, how can I worship? That's the whole point here, verse 13. Israel is walking in an ungodly manner. They're taking other women. They're joining themselves with godless women. And yet they're coming and worshiping God. And so God says, this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. How dare you come to the altar when you're walking in sin against your wife, against your husband. You come and you pretend to worship. God says, I don't hear that worship. I don't hear those prayers. You think I'm pleased with you? Walk according to my covenant. The covenant that I established with you and with your husband, with your wife. How can you think that God is going to receive that worship, those prayers? And so God calls us, he calls Israel, repent. You need to look at your own walk. You need to look at your own life. And then you need to turn and worship. Now the sinful abuse here of this bond is seen in the passage. In the repeated word treacherous. Against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. That word strikingly is found repeatedly in our text. Now the sinful abuses of marriage were twofold. First, the young men of Judah profaned the covenant of God by marrying the daughters of a strange God. That first of all. And that's recorded in verses 11 and 12. Judah had dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. They were intermarrying with the wicked, with the heathen. But then secondly, the second sin against marriage is... Verse 13, and this ye have done again. And there the reference now is the second thing, which is the putting away, the divorcing of the wife of their youth. What was happening here? The men of Judah were growing tired of their wives. This was not something unique to Judah. This is something that men and women throughout the ages have experienced. They tire with the wife, the husband, 
that God is pleased to unite them with. The weakness, the problems that are encountered in marriage are allowed to grow and they're allowed to develop. And pretty soon those weaknesses, those struggles, instead of being addressed by God's word, become seemingly insurmountable. Personal desires, personal difficulties are used to overrule the word of God. Someone says, I know the Bible says this, but... And all married couples know that struggle, the difficulty with our own flesh and walking humbly and submissively with regard to God in marriage. We see sin, we see weaknesses, and the devil starts driving that wedge between us. Now he adds to the sin here by calling the wife the wife of his youth. We realize all marriage is sacred, but especially sacred is that bond that was established years ago between you and your wife when she was a young woman in the flower of her age. Many years you lived together with that woman. Mutual love prevailed between the two of you. But then you let lust and you let selfishness have its place. And that selfishness and that lust Made you forsake the husbands, my giving in to the temptations of the devil. Divorce is mentioned here as a treachery. In verse 10, verse 11, Malachi refers to dealing treacherously. Judah has dealt treacherously. And then specifically in verses 14, 15, and 16, every verse of our text, he references that sin. Thou hast dealt treacherously, 14. 15, let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. 16, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Verse 16 includes some of the strongest language for God's displeasure. The word that's hate there, he hateth, putting away, is the strongest word that the Hebrew has for God's displeasure. Now, God's displeasure in the context of treachery. What is treachery? Treachery is the betrayal of love and trust of one who's close to you. You're false to the one whom you confess to love and you secretly work to try to bring about their destruction. The one who's treacherous is the one who turns his or her back on the one who's a close friend and sells that friendship short uses that friendship now selfishly for one's own pleasure instead of for the pursuit of God's glory. Ultimately, the greatest example in Scripture of such treachery was Judas Iscariot. You remember what Judas Iscariot did? He used his occasion as a close friend of Jesus to turn Jesus into the authorities and to try to benefit personally. Ultimately, all treachery finds its source in the devil. This is what the devil did. He used his exalted place as the highest angel that God created in heaven as a means to try to bring about his own personal attempt to take over the whole of God's purpose and plan, trying to turn the earthly creation against God to himself. The traitor is the one who divorces his wife divorces his, her husband in order to marry another, another who perhaps is younger, more attractive, sexually 
more appealing. The traitor is the one who abandons her husband in order to run after another man who will provide for her needs in a greater manner. Treachery. Now this treachery is described here as violence. It's hurtful. It's that which is destructive. It works grievous harm in the life of all those involved. That's always the result of treachery. Look what that treachery did in the life of Judas. It so pervaded Judas's life that he finally gave his life. He finally committed suicide. Treachery is that which harms and destroys not only those around, but also one's own soul. Verse 16 states, One covereth violence with his garment. By divorcing his wife, forsaking his wife, the man covers himself in the sight of God and man with the violence of his act. And as God, God looks down, God sees that violence. God is able to see everything that's going on in the heart of a man, a woman. And God sees that wickedness. He sees that violence. And it's violence against the wife. A man betrays his closest friend. The one who gave herself to him with body, soul, and spirit. Who entrusted herself to him completely. As a woman needed him, expressed that dependence upon him treacherously. He forsake that needy, trusting lover and friend. It's violence against the husband. The wife who forsakes her husband, forsakes the one whom God determined that she needed, not only as the one who would be a helper for her, but whom she would be a helper suited for his needs. And now, she aims at his destruction. This violence hurts like nothing else can hurt. There's physical, bodily, spiritual anguish. And now the husband, the wife, sets his spouse up for, to be vulnerable to the devil and to future sins. And that comes out again and again in the passages that warn us about divorce. To marry another would mean to pursue a way of life that's in opposition to the clear will of God. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Matthew 5.32 And we know that that reference is found in many other places. The devil is aiming at our eternal ruin. What does the devil want? The devil wants us to engage in more sin because the devil knows the word of God. He knows the word of God in Galatians 5 verse 21. They that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. This treachery is a betrayal of the children whom God has been pleased to give them. The children bear untold physical, psychological, spiritual harm. Even the world recognizes this and the world warns about the effects on children. The grace of God alone is able to preserve and to keep such children from being destroyed physically and spiritually. And often God cuts off such in their generations, causing devastation, untold grief. For God's sake, beloved, your and my calling is deny your selfish desires. Submit to God's good will and work hard at marriage. This is the one whom God has put you with. The one who is in covenant with you. The one who is your companion. And you're to humble yourself before God and before your spouse. This treachery is a betrayal of marriage. Jehovah hates putting away. 
This is God's word already in the Old Testament. Now that's significant. We all know that divorce was being practiced regularly in Israel. And we have that startling chapter, Deuteronomy 24. One reads Deuteronomy 24 and gasps. What was going on? It's a confusing, it's a perplexing chapter. Men were divorcing their wives for any occasion. They woke up and they found some blemish and they divorced them. And it was being allowed, it was being tolerated. Now Moses made a restriction. He said, you need to get a bill of divorcement. And then Moses said, if you divorce your wife, you may never have her back again. Now we read that chapter and we're perplexed. Why is it that God allowed men to divorce their wives? And why is it then that there could not be any reconciliation afterward? But we're thankful then for the clarity that Jesus provides in the gospel accounts. You'll remember the Pharisees knew Deuteronomy 24. And now as Jesus is teaching about marriage, they come to Jesus, tempting him. And they try to say, Jesus, you're walking contrary to Moses. They want to pit Jesus against Moses. And you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and Deuteronomy 19. He condemned the actions of Israel in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus said, Moses suffered you. He put up with it. He tolerated it. And it was because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning it was not so. So that Jesus emphatically says, Deuteronomy 24 is not the standard of marriage. And for you to appeal to Deuteronomy 24 is to appeal to that which was allowed because of the hardness of the hearts of those in Israel. You need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to God making them one in order that they might bring forth a godly seed. Now you recall too from that, the disciples were shocked. The disciples twice over said to Jesus, are you sure about that? And they were so shocked, they said, it is not good for a man to marry if that's the case. So that Jesus was setting forth something that was hard, something that was difficult, even in his day. And the disciples understand that. And Jesus points out, this is nothing new. From the beginning, this is the way it was. And he says that God will give grace where needed. Jehovah God, already in the Old Testament, now expresses here that he hates divorce. And the evil of divorce is always closely related to the wickedness of remarriage. This is what the men of Judah were doing. They were divorcing so that they could marry. Behind the desire to divorce is the lust for a marriage with another man, another woman. Thou shalt not covet. God commands us to be content, to live with the one whom he has ordained for his sake and for his glory. And God condemns not only the first act, divorcing, but also then the second, the remarrying. Often the accusation is brought that the Old Testament was treating women lightly. That the Old Testament treated women as second-class citizens. That women didn't seem to have the high place that men did. Notice how God here comes alongside the wife. The wife who has been unjustly treated by her husband. And God pities her. And God raises up her defense. This word is a word of warning to all those 
who in their hearts begin to think and allow themselves to be tempted in that direction. And beloved, how urgent that word of God is for you and for me today. The bond of marriage is sacred to God. It's pleasing to Him. And we are called to submit to God despite the struggles that we face, despite the hardships that we have to endure, despite the sacrifices that are required. And we recognize too that this truth is a truth that must be upheld and maintained by the church of Jesus Christ. Standing on the solid foundation of God's word is always the calling of the church of God. And as ministers, as churches, as office bearers, as members, stand on the basis of God's word, there's going to be mockery, there's going to be ridicule, there's going to be opposition. You children know, what happened to John the Baptist because he stood on this truth of God's word? He got his head chopped off. Standing for the word of God will give occasion to opposition and hatred. But God's word is clear. There's no need for a study committee. There's no need for extensive training to try to figure out what does God teach concerning marriage? What is God's will with regard to me now in the relationship in which God has placed me? The Bible is clear. And the church and the office bearers and the members must stand faithful with regard to God's word. Pastoral love needs to be shown to those who are walking in sin. Care needs to be exercised in love to come alongside them, to help them see the sin and to know the calling that God has placed before them. And God demands that the church does so for the sake of His covenant, for the sake of His glory, that His covenant be extolled as that which is an unbreakable, unchangeable covenant. Marriage, remember, is the mystery of God and the church. God instituted marriage as a symbol of his eternal covenant of grace through the ages between himself and his elect church in Jesus Christ. And that covenant fellowship is intimate. God and his church are one flesh. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And by the grace of God, the church is faithful to Christ. And Christ is faithful to his church. God will never forsake his own. God loves and preserves and keeps her. And by the power of the love of God and the power of the grace of God, God's children cleave to him and receive strength from him to walk in holiness in all of their life. Beloved, God requires that we reflect on this glorious truth of the covenant in our lives. That we marry in the Lord. That we enter into marriage with the seriousness that it demands. We take heed to the words of the disciples. Beware. Understand what you're getting into when you marry. That marriage is for life between one man, one woman. And we not only take care then who we marry, we take care how we marry. That we know the command of God to be faithful and we know that God will give grace. He will give strength to those who need it. We enter into marriage aware of the challenges that are going to come our way. The devil's at work. Our own flesh is weak. But his grace and his strength is that on which we lean. And as couples, we're first of all committed to God. God is the one who ordained that we too be brought together. God is the one who now brings us together. And God is the one who works in us repentance. He works in us the grace to forgive 
And he's the one who strengthens us to selflessly live our lives for him. Beloved, the result is strong, happy homes within the church. Marriages where children are brought forth as a godly seed raised up by God for the future of his church. And scripture puts forth God as our witness. Now what does that mean? Malachi here talks about the fact that the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. Verse 14. God defends and God maintains marriage. He's the witness before whom we stand. Now that's a positive and a negative. The negative is God knows your heart. And God knows what you've done. You're not just standing before your parents, not just before your spouse, not just before those that were present at your marriage. You stand before the living God. And the living God is witness of your heart and of your actions. He knows your selfish spirit. And he sees you're living for yourself. He sees that you're living for your own pleasure. And God calls you to repent. And to stand before God as judge is a tragic thing when you're alone. To be united with Christ, it's a joy and a wonder. But notice, this is what Israel was saying. They were saying, where's the God of judgment? God's not going to do anything about it. We can just keep on doing this. We don't have to worry about God. God's not going to come to judge. Where is the God of judgment? Verse 17, he wearied the Lord. God is witness. God sees. But also positively, God as witness knows what you need. And God is the one alone who can preserve and keep you in that holy bond. God as witness is your strength. That's your comfort. As you say your vows with your husband, with your wife, you do so acknowledging, I'm weak. I can't do this. But God is witness that I love him and that I desire his faith and his strength to preserve and to keep me. And God then calls us to adopt the same attitude toward putting away as he does. Now, beloved, that's where we find the gospel here in this text. This is the wonder of your and my salvation. The wonderful tidings that we hear in this word are those that are echoed later on in Malachi 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is saying to Israel, I loved you. And he's speaking, of course, to Israel according to the Spirit, according to the elect remnant. He says, I love you, and I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I am Jehovah. I have established covenant with you, and I will preserve and keep that covenant to all eternity. You've done bad things. You've done terrible things. But I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to have mercy upon you. I'm going to have compassion on you. Men and women are going to forsake you. They're going to mock you. They're going to cause untold hurt. They might even kill you. But don't worry, because I am your husband, and I will keep you, and I will preserve you to all eternity. I will never let you go. I am faithful. And as your God, forever embracing you in love, I will honor you. I will bless you. I will dwell with you in an everlasting bond to all eternity. I'm not going to tire of you. I'm not going to get sick of you and go after another lover. You are mine. And I will preserve and keep you to all eternity. That's the message of the gospel, beloved, with which God here speaks to Israel and to us. 
And this word is not a word that we groan at. It's not a word that we ignore. It's not a word that we try to change to conform to our desires. It's not a word that has to be changed to conform to the situation of the church world today. This is God's word. And God is witness before which we rejoice. And God calls us then, reflect on my love. When you're struggling in relationships, especially in marriage, think upon what I do for you. Think upon my faithfulness. And go forward, trusting and believing that I'm with you. And I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to keep and preserve you. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Now, beloved, that comes to all of us personally. And notice, twice he repeats this. Take heed to your spirit. Verse 15. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. 16. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Your marriage may well be troubled to the point where you despair. You think there's no hope for my marriage. God comes to us and takes from us that despair. God says, live unto me. Look to me. I am able to do that which is humanly impossible. I am able to preserve and keep you. The way out is not the way of divorce. Divorce is not an option. The way out of your troubled marriage is repentance. It's confession of sin. It's forgiveness. It's reconciliation. And it's looking at your spirit. It's not your spouse. Look at your spirit. You need to submit to me. You need to live unto me. You need to show forth my praise. It doesn't matter if your spouse is an unbeliever. You are called to live unto me and to show forth kindness that perhaps God will use your witness to win that one over. Counseling may be needed. Humility and willingness to acknowledge fault. We need to change our ways. We can't control others. We can't control our spouse. But take heed to your spirit. God leads us in difficult circumstances where our spouses have medical challenges that require of us tremendous time. Perhaps even they begin to forget who we are. Challenges that become insurmountable in our minds. And we say, it's just too difficult. How can we go forward? And God says, it's not just difficult. It's impossible for you to do of your own. But you need to look to me because with me all things are possible. And admit your need for the cross and your need for God's grace. Get help, counseling, the pastor, elders, others if necessary. But most importantly, look to God. And you know how difficult it is for God to maintain his marriage with you and me? It cost him his own son. And that's the beautiful thing that we witnessed this morning with the sacrament of baptism. As the water was sprinkled, we're reminded God gave his own son in order that his blood would be shed for my sin, my unfaithfulness, my spirit, which is selfish, and my spirit, which becomes dissatisfied with God's will. Jesus covered that. He forgave me. And all my sins, as grievous as they are, covered through the blood of Jesus Christ who took me into covenant with himself and who will preserve and keep me in an unbreakable, faithful, eternal relationship. Beloved, we look to him. 
We take heed to our spirit and we cherish our wife. We cherish our husband. We esteem the children God gives as the seed of God. And we seek to live in gratitude to our great God for the blessed marriage that he's established with us. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. We are selfish. We are set on our own pursuits and covetous. Lord, work in us repentance and sorrow and grant that we might live unto thee, that we might walk faithfully before thy face as those who confess the wonder of thy covenant, the joy of that friendship and the beautiful relationship of that companionship that we enjoy with thee. And preserve and keep us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We turn to number 360, Family Happiness. We sing the five stanzas of 360. <clears throat> 